Welcome to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast presented by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Barb, your host for this episode, and with me are Devin. Good morning. And Josie. Hello. And Stephanie. Hi. To discuss our latest pick, Sabrina and Corina, stories by Kali Fajardo-Anstein. And spoiler alert, today we'll be discussing Sabrina and Corina in its entirety, So if you haven't finished reading it yet, you might want to come back to this episode when you've done so. Now for a little bit about the author. Kali Fajardo-Einstein was born in Denver, Colorado, and is the second oldest of seven siblings. She dropped out of high school weeks into her senior year, earning her GED and going on to graduate with a BA in English and minor in Chicana Chicano Studies from Metropolitan State University of Denver. She holds an MFA from the University of Wyoming and worked for over a decade as an independent bookseller at Westside Books in North Denver. Sabrina and Corina Stories is a 2021 National Academy of Arts and Letters Award winner, received the 2020 American Book Award was a National Book Award finalist in 2019 and landed on the Best Books of 2019 lists from Library Journal, the New York Public Library, and the American Library Association. Kirkus Reviews, which also named Sabrina and Karina one of its best books of 2019, describes it this way. Eleven achingly realistic stories set in Denver and southern Colorado bear witness to the lives of Latino women of indigenous descent trying to survive generations of poverty, racism, addiction, and violence. Fajardo Anstein takes aim at our country's social injustices and ills without succumbing to pessimism. The result is a nearly perfect collection of stories that is emotionally wrenching, but never without glimmers of resistance and hope. Now let's throw some stars at this book. I'll go first. Um, I hope I don't gush too much, but I found this collection absolutely amazing. There's a strong sense of place. Uh, Denver gets uh, props and and some uh, not-so-good props. Um, She uses sensory details to reinforce her core themes, and that makes her stories so vivid and so real. She has a masterful use of distance in her storytelling She takes a straightforward and dispassionate approach, which I found really amps up the sorrow and heartache she describes. And yet, um, there's always a sense of hope there. And Devin, you mentioned uh, a while back in one of our podcasts how you enjoy books that, that pique your curiosity about a topic. I'm in the same boat. She mentions a couple fascinating things about Denver. Uh, For example, Cheeseman Park uh, and, and why it's haunted. And the uh, Displaced Orarian Scholarships, which I had never heard of. And so that pushed me into research mode, being a good librarian. And I learned some things that I didn't know about Denver, and I loved it. I give this five stars. Devin? Yeah, um, I enjoyed this book as well. I'm not normally a fiction reader, but um, this was beautifully written, and it really grabbed my interest right away. The author does a great job of bringing her characters to life, and I really liked the fast pace and how convenient the short story format was. Um, although um, I don't really like the short story format normally because it really just kind of left me wanting more, which was a little bit frustrating. Um, I immediately were draw- was drawn into her stories and her characters, and then I just felt cut off. So mm. 
that's not really a compliment, but it's not really a bad review either. Um, right. The stories were great. The author is is really um, passionate about her culture and um, her stories, but yes. I wanted more. Um, mm. So I give it four out of five stars for that reason. Okay. Josie? So this is my first, uh, I think it's my first five-star review. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just thought this book was so beautiful. Hmm. Um, her writing is stunning to me. And I would consider this literary fiction. And I don't read a lot of literary fiction because mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes it's pretentious. And mm-hmm. the writing, it's the, the, the author's so focused on writing mm-hmm. and making words and putting sentences together and making it all emotive that mm-hmm. they're not really telling a story. Mm-hmm. You know, you feel sort of like, I don't know what's going on. It's just all these flowery words, you know. Mm-hmm. But Kali, it, it was never pretentious to me. But the way she put words together, the sentences she used, the way she described things was just, it was breathtaking. Yes. And it, it made me stop and, and like, oh, my God, and read that sentence again. <laughs> and, and I also felt like it was, it was very funny. Yes, surprisingly so. You know, so. That, that first story about the sugar baby, just, <laughs> I was yeah. just laughing a lot. because make you laugh. <laughs> you know, it, it was poignant, but she, the little girl has such such a sense of humor. And I think out, all throughout these stories, there's there was humor in that writing and, and realness. So, yes. yeah, um, it's been my favorite book so far. It's it's beautiful. Mm. Great. Stephanie? Yeah, I, I agree. I really enjoyed this book um, as well. It was really quiet and beautiful. I do love reading literary fiction. Uh I felt like this was right in my wheelhouse. Um, Mm -hmm. It had a real quiet strength to it, and the story struck me as so intimate. And um, as a transplant to this region, um, I really appreciated how how the author really helped you see the characters, the circumstances, and the place as a whole. Mm. And it gave me a whole different perspective um, on things I really hadn't thought about at all. So uh-huh. um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was beautiful. I'm super conservative when I hand out stars. I feel like <laughs> I'm giving it four stars. Four, four stars, which is really five stars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm the same one. Yeah. They're Never inflated had star. stars. Yes. If I weep, ah. Uh, you're on a Matic five stars. Um, <laughs> yes. Did this make you cry? No, I didn't weep. Oh, oh okay. I, see, yeah. I, I had oh. a lot of feelings. It's, yeah, me too. It's, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about the genre of short story and, and collections of short stories. Devin, you already mentioned something about short stories, which kind of leaves you hanging yeah. and, and, and can be frustrating. Uh, but Stephanie, you had some thoughts about this too. Yeah, I, I always say I don't like short stories. Um, <laughs> I've said that for years and, you know, but over time I've picked up some sometimes by accident um, and, and I really started to enjoy them. Um, I still struggle with trying to connect the stories as chapters uh, mm-hmm. and that is something that I'm kind of <laughs> working on. But I, um, I I loved this book of short stories and there were some others that I, I that came to mind as I finished this book. Do you want me to share those titles? Oh, Absolutely. sure. Okay, here are my other short story collections that make the make the cut. So um, uh, You Think It, I'll Say It by Curtis Sittenfeld was a big favorite for me. I really um, enjoy her writing and uh, didn't want to miss that collection of short stories when I found it. Florida by Lauren Groff is amazing. Lots of, it's been a while since I've read it, but um, magical realism 
in, in there, um, Objects of Desire. I just read that. That's a new title, uh, Stories by Clara Sestanovich. Also, um, just, I don't know, really nice renderings of the characters. And Black Enough by E.B. Zoboy really resonated with me, too, because it's um, an exploration of blackness in America. by a, And that's a collection, right? So it's a bunch of different authors, but still really worth reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something... Um, comforting and all of these collections what I really enjoyed was this sharing of um, experience and often around a hard you know hard the hard parts of life so mm. um, life changes for people and people whose experiences often aren't often reflected in, in literature so, are yeah. any of these titles like nonfiction? are these like true stories about the author's experiences or are they sort of like the book we just read they're all sort of like the book we just okay. read yeah mm. they're all fictional so not, yeah okay it's interesting. I do read a lot of memoir, but this is I do too. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Stephanie. I don't really particularly like short stories, and I'm racking my brain to think of a different short story that I read, you know, short story collection that I've read before, but I think this is my first. Mm-hmm. So I maintain that I didn't like short stories before I ever, ever read one, so that's probably <laughs> not good. Um, but I, like I said, you know, I really, really liked this. Um, my only complaint is that there's no closure. I need something that I can dig my teeth into. And, you know, I, I immediately got attached to her characters and her style of writing within like two paragraphs. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you turn the pages, you know, there's two or three pages and the story's over. And there's so many unanswered questions left. And to me, that's frustrating. Yes. Um, but I can understand, you know, how convenient this can be for people. And I understand the appeal. But I mean, like I told Barb earlier, it's like taking one bite of ice cream. What's the point? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Why do you think people write short stories? That's a great question. Um, Kind of maybe flexing their writing muscles. Um, Mm. Barb, you said this was her her first her her first published published book, book, a collection. And I would read another book by her because I Mm. do love her writing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's beautiful, and she's really good at getting you attached to the characters quickly. But she cuts me off, and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, well, I did relay the ice cream analogy to another librarian, <laughs> and <laughs> their response was, yes, but why choose one flavor when you could sample all That's uh, fair. That's very good yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, but I can't do one bite of ice cream. I need ten. <laughs> <laughs> At least. So, yeah, that was, tongue freezes, right? that was a good point. But, yeah, um, I don't know why people write short stories. What do you guys think? Well, uh, I can throw in something that I heard in an interview that uh, the author did. And uh, she explained that growing up, she learned a great deal of her family history, uh, points about her culture, her heritage, by the stories her relatives told. Just, you know, sitting around, you know, while they're cooking a batch of of menudo or something. And um, that was kind of the format you get you get uh, a quick blast about one person or one situation or or one heartache and then you know that somebody else jumps in and tells another story and and so it seems to be connected to uh her experience growing up and learning about uh what life was all about from her relatives and it seemed to her a perfect vehicle for for bringing these particular characters uh to life yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. That's one reason. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, there were moments when I was reading um, the text or dialogue, and um, they made me slightly uncomfortable. And I think when you read a lot of literary fiction, it's um, it's topical. Even if it's topical and contemporary, you get some pretty sanitized dialogue. And I yeah. would say, to piggyback on your comment, that this felt maybe more organic um, mm, in the dialogue. More real. 
So it just took me a while to fully appreciate how well she writes that in her characters and how unflinching, like how she's really showing their unflinching and authentic selves in the oh, text and dialogue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Stephanie. Um, although it didn't take me a while to fully appreciate, I was almost immediately sucked in. Um, <laughs> the way that she writes her characters um, with such depth is what, for me, makes this book so good. Um, she just drops you into someone's life in the middle of the day, you know, in the middle of them doing something. There's yes. no real beginning and there's no end. For me, that d- that just made me immediately attached to them because I felt like I was eavesdropping on somebody's life. And mm. I could see, you know, every every character had a struggle or had something, you know, happen to them. And I was immediately, you know, s- sympathetic, you know, for mm-hmm. them. And I wanted to know more. Yeah, that was for sure really gripping. And uh, the other thing that really got me that I was really interested in was how she would weave um, intersecting identities and characters um, the intersecting identities of characters that are ethnically mixed together. Mm. That mm-hmm. was really um, masterfully done. And um, Did you notice that she, in some of the stories, mentioned characters from a different story? I was like, wait oh, a yes. minute, she's talking about, you know... There's, there's little... Somebody else what did she seen. call them? I saw it in another interview. Uh, Easter eggs hidden in the, the yeah. stories. Yeah, she that, definitely that, did you know, she, One character goes to a cemetery, and you see the, the, the tombstone of one of the characters who died in a previous story. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. she's hidden yeah. little you know, gems like that throughout the whole collection. And that, that helps tie the whole thing together. I agree, I agree. So it's like she's talking about... A community. This whole yeah. community, and we're yes. just getting little snatches of each person's right. experience yeah but and they're that, all interconnected and that town right the Sagar- what was it called Sagar- Sagarito? So, yeah I it's not a real it's town it's, it's not fictional yeah yeah she but made it that seems one like up. it's like yeah this, this community comes from this this town yeah. right. a lot of them oh yeah yeah I for sure wanted to look that up on google maps uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> didn't find it <laughs> we need a google of imaginary places yeah <laughs> The story, the town, the the connections and the relationships between, you know, parent and child. Um, I feel like she was almost, and I don't know if I'm right, writing kind of about her own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one of one of seven children. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that, um, you know, they didn't struggle somewhat with money and maybe not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she writes about you know, addiction and abuse and conflict and mm-hmm. poverty. And, you know, I can't help think that she must have experienced some of that herself because she writes about it so knowingly. Yeah. You know, or, it, you know may have bubbled up in those stories that she heard, mm-hmm. you know, from, from family members exactly. and, and their experiences in the past. Yeah. I, um, one of the things that I really loved about most of these stories was, you know, the familiar relationships and, and, Motherhood was big, mm-hmm. and some of the mother-daughter relationships were strong, um, but many of them, you know, the mother had left. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And ca- uh, that first story, the mom left and then kind of jumped yeah. back in and then would leave again and jump back in. And uh, I think there was only one story where the dad was, was around, and he, was, he took care of those kids. Mm. Yeah, the, I think mm-hmm. there was like two or three, actually, because I oh, remember okay. thinking, I'm so glad that she didn't always make the dad the bad guy or the mom the bad guy. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, good yeah. point. She really made both of them, you know, the dad leaves and beats up the mom or the mom, you know, is addicted or can't stand being a family, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. leaves. So I appreciate that. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, so so I, I mean, I felt like that for very first story, which probably was my favorite story mm-hmm. about the sugar baby. Um, yes. I loved that girl. I can't even remember <laughs> her name was. What is her name? Oh, cool. no, not Cora. No, 
Girl is a Mormon. Yeah, and, and see, another thing with short stories, it's like they all mash together. Yeah, yeah. Sierra. 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 Yeah, I just Beautiful loved name. her. Yes, and I loved how fun. she kind of learned her, her relationship with the baby, <laughs> the sugar, mm-hmm. um, kind of mirrored how she saw her mother had treated her. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's and, good and the little yes. boy, you know, he was really wanted to take care of that, that baby. And He's so <laughs> ready to parent. Wasn't just, he? Wasn't he, <laughs> he had his act together. And, <laughs> and I, I just, I don't know, I yeah. just... The whole mother daughter and mother father and even daughter granddaughter yeah. kind of stuff. It just that was that was a big theme throughout. I thought, and I think she did it beautifully. Yeah, it reminds mm-hmm. me of the Sarah Smarsh book we read. Um, you know about Dolly Parton and how the women, oh, you know, oh, Appalachian women struggled women. and how the women were so strong and they uh-huh. took care of each other and the men were kind of like over here uh-huh. <laughs> doing their naughty things. Um, mm. But yeah, I really liked in, in that sugar baby story. She made the young man, the sweet one, you know, kind of the caring one, and and then Sierra oh, yeah. was, you know, she kind of switched genders. And I hate to say that, but that's you know normally how it how it's portrayed. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She was the cocky one. She was. <laughs> I don't blame her. Poor thing. <laughs> yeah. This is a lot to tackle. <laughs> Something I forgot to. This really um, was interesting to me. I talked about like intersecting identities and seeing it in the story, but. I don't, I haven't read a lot about intersecting Latinx and indigenous identities. And I think that, you know, and maybe this goes back to what Barb was saying about those short bits of stories. It felt like that's what she was giving back to us. So it wasn't like a yes. clear picture. It was little snippets of bits of whatever understanding had been passed down mm-hmm. in the story. And I, I just, I really, it was interesting to me. It really caught my attention. Yeah. 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 I'm glad, uh, I'm glad that that was brought up because I didn't even think about that's the way she received the story. So, of course, she right. would, you know, present them that way herself. Cause, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they might seem a little experience. bit unfinished, but there there was a reason for that. Maybe she's she's still putting it all together, yeah. too, uh, and, and understanding and claiming her identity. Well, let's take a short break here, and we'll be back with more discussion of Kali Fajardo-Anstein's Sabrina and Karina. Book Chatter is sponsored by the Friends of the Longmont Public Library. Hello, Longmont listeners. I've got great news. The Discovery Passes are back. On the list so far, we have the Butterfly Pavilion, the Denver Botanic Gardens, the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum, and more. You can make one reservation to each of the attractions once a year and can reserve passes up to 30 days in advance. Each attraction decides the number of passes you get per reservation. For example, the Dinosaur Ridge National Natural Landmark offers up four passes per reservation. These passes are for Longmont residents only. To make your reservations or get more details, visit the Longmont Public Library's website. The Discovery Pass program is generously funded by the Friends of the Longmont Library. Now, back to Book Chatter. And we're back. We have a couple discussion questions. Uh, thanks, actually, to the author. On her website, she published some um, some reading helps. If you're reading this book, here are some dis- discussion questions. And the first one says, did this book teach you something new about the American West? And if so, what? Stephanie, you had some thoughts on that one? You know, I've lived on the East Coast, all up and down the East Coast, and I've watched other cities 
uh, gentrify. And while like the overall outcome is the same, something about um, the gentrification she describes in Denver mm-hmm. of um, Latinx communities there is is just strikes me as a little bit different. Um, you know, as opposed to the heavily African American dominant East Coast com- neighborhoods that I'm used to. Um, yeah. And I I just I think it was an important read for me in that way and uh sort of grappling with and thinking about how they're the same and how they're different in contemporary writing and like in present day right this is what's happening right now um Mm -hmm. so um it's just an important concept to consider I think in our I didn't leave it behind on the east coast I guess was my (laughs) takeaway from the Yeah. yeah yeah exactly I think there's um in Denver I, I don't know if this is still an issue Globeville mm. it's 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 a little um a community sort of and I think they want to expand I70 and it's right by I just Globeville I read about this yeah yeah I'd love to and, hear and what, it what is be, it called globe or glow globe globe okay globe yeah field. and it'd be interesting to know more about that Globeville mm-hmm. okay and sort of what the background of that town is uh that neighborhood Sort of what's going on, but yeah, people being pushed away to make room for the make room for scanners. Yeah, highway. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, what do you do? What do you do? I mean, you know, tourism, you know, is a big part of our economy, yeah. and I-70 is heavily used. I can see both. You know, you shouldn't be pushing people out of their homes that they've had for generations, but yeah, you know, times change, and yeah. uh, you know, you got to adapt. Yeah. I don't but, know. I don't know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a mixed blessing, and and this kind of relates to um, a couple of things I learned about Denver that I alluded to earlier here. Um, that uh, there are some interesting uh, stories in the dark underbelly of Denver, and uh, one of them, for example, was uh, she mentions Cheeseman Park being a former cemetery. And not all the bodies got moved when it was turned into a park. And so even today, you know, they tell contractors, oh, while you're digging there, don't be surprised if you turn up some skeletons. And who are the people who were left behind? Um, As you might imagine, they were the poor, the um, ethnic groups, uh, the criminals who were buried there. Yeah, it, it, it was just striking to me that, you know, she mentions this in passing, but it's something about the city that maybe you hadn't heard before, and I sure hadn't. The other thing she mentioned, again, in, in, in just, just a very quick passing kind of comment, was the um, what's called the Displaced Orarian Scholarship. And this kind of ties into what we're talking about here, about gentrification. Um, back in the 60s, uh, the, 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 the powers that be decided that there was a need for a downtown campus and uh, Auraria, you may not know, is actually one of the oldest neighborhoods in, in Denver. And at that point in the 60s, it was heavily uh, Latino. And um, there was a decision made to basically level the neighborhoods to make space for Auraria campus, which now has several universities. Um, so it's a blessing to the city but how do the people feel who just had their neighborhood knocked down and have to move over to Lincoln Park or something like that? Um, yeah, it's part of that, that geez, dark, dark stuff yeah. that goes on in a city in the name of progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it reminded me of that book we, we uh, reviewed earlier this year, The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. She also exposes some of the dark side of New York City in the process of telling this story. 
which was remarkable, by the way. Go read it if you haven't already. The, the city we became by N.K. Jemison. Um, but yeah, there there are things going on in cities um, that um, she uncovers. So there there are um, uh, there are things she likes about Denver. Obviously, there's things she likes uh, about Saurito, the little town in in southern Colorado where her ancestors came from. But there are also uh, dark sides to both. Yeah. So and, what happens when? A government comes in and says, we're going to take your land to, you know, expand a highway or build a campus. Do they give you money to move or are they just like, you're well, out of luck? Essentially, well, here's what they offered. Those scholarships were to people who uh, either, you know, well, probably not they themselves at this point, but their ancestors, mm-hmm. their families. If you oh. are a displaced family, you get a free ride oh. to the universities that were built on top of your neighborhood. And then these scholarships disappeared? Uh, they're still they're, they're still in existence. Being, People oh, are still using them. So yeah, I don't know how long the you know the the uh, the clause lasts. How many generations are going to be supplied in education? But it's it's one way that the city tried to make reparations uh, for people who were displaced. But I found that just fascinating and dark. Huh. I, mean, I that's go ahead, Sydney. Oh, I was going to say, in order to be compensated, you have to have ownership of the property so that would impact sure. people if they're oh yeah renting absolutely yeah so then do the uh, i guess the landlords the owners own, there's yeah. probably somebody in a foreign yeah. country yes. or something that owns that well <laughs> I don't yeah know. i guess i it's hard for me to relate i've never felt a- attached to a place uh, I, and this is a theme that seems to run through a lot of these books and, and especially a lot of these stories in, in this book particularly. But I've, I've never felt attached to a place. I don't care what city I live in or what house I live in or what. And maybe that's just part of my familial cultural mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. I just, none of my parents felt the same way and my mm-hmm. grandparents say. I I don't. I guess I, I can identify with that. But as a, like culturally, as you pull back from Denver, it was a shift for me to think about the American West in a way that wasn't like centered around the white male cowboy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, even though I don't necessarily feel super connected to this place or another place, it did um, paint a different picture of like my image of the American West, which I, you yes. know, for better or for worse, you are in some ways attached to, right? Cause sure. it's, it's where you are. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was a beautiful part of the story, just like kind of erasing some of that. I mean, there was some juxtaposition when that um, there were some boy, there were some boyfriends, there were some characters that um, sort of had that flavor. Yes, <laughs> yes, they did. But um, yeah, by and large, I feel like it painted a some something of a different picture for me. Yeah, I'm slightly Same jealous here. that I don't feel that attachment. Like I, I can appreciate how comforting that must feel to mm-hmm. be somewhere you feel you know like is your home mm-hmm. i think it's it's maybe it's it's um our modern lifestyles yeah like oh we yeah don't feel that connected to our neighbors and our street and our block you know yeah because right we just sort of live in our own little bubbles and that and it's be. it's something that our modern lifestyles and maybe our like upper middle class yeah just doesn't do mm-hmm. yeah i agree with you um yeah, because I knew it, it used to be like that. Um, Much more so, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even, even you know, in the suburban, you know, white neighborhoods, quote-unquote, um, I think they still sat out on their porch and, 
you know, knew their neighbors and looked out for their neighbors. And I don't mm-hmm. know that that was, you know, j- just one culture or one, you know, ethnicity. But I feel like the white culture lost that where the other groups didn't, maybe? I don't know if Perhaps, it's really, yeah. it's racial. I think it's more economic. You do? Okay. I do. Mm-hmm. I feel like the wealthier communities are the less connected. More isolated. And maybe the, the mm-hmm. poorer communities need more connection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just mean, to they, survive. To survive, you yeah. know, and... Yeah, um, I think you're right, because if you read things about, like, um, the poor parts of America or, like, the Appalachia, mm-hmm. you know, region... I think they're very connected to each other, and mm-hmm. they know their neighbors, and they know the history of they you just know, need all that their to survive, and right. they kept that. Oh. And mm-hmm. and maybe if you're living in a house that's humongous, right? You you can kind of get away, yeah. And maybe there are like four people in that huge ass house, mm-hmm. whereas in some of the other poorer neighborhoods, maybe it's a smaller house and there's a lot of people in there, and so yeah. maybe they spend a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I gotta go outside and get away from everyone, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, find ways know. to entertain themselves. It's not social media, video games. I don't know. I, I'm jealous of that. I, I, I really yeah. am. It, it yeah. looks beautiful yeah. and vibrant, and I'm sure it has its downfalls, and everybody knows your business, and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But that could be the downside, yeah. 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 I, I know one neighbor, and that's because she comes talks to me, and the other neighbors <laughs> I've never spoken a word to. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Uh, next question is uh, around female characters. Hardo Anstein presents her female characters as pillars of strength and also women with flaws. Why do you think the author did this? That's what women are. <laughs> They're flawed and, <laughs> yeah. and Well, I, I certainly found her characters instantly relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they just come off as real right off the page. They've been forced by their, their circumstances, tough circumstances, to become strong. And often at a very, very young age, I, I was totally taken by Neva in in the story Any Further West. The last paragraph where she's talking about her mother, this epiphany she has about this woman who has struggled in, in so many ways. And uh, you know, she's seeing she's seeing what's what's going on and, and why her mother can't support her. And uh, I just want to read this paragraph. It's at the end of the story, Any Further West. Her stance was wobbly and unrefined, as though she had given someone else permission to wear her skin. That's when I knew she was forever caught in her own undercurrent, bouncing from one deep swell to the next. She would never lift me out of that sea. She would never pause to fill her lungs with air. Soon the world would yank her chain of sadness against every shore, every rock, every glass-filled beach, leaving nothing but the broken hull of a drowned woman. I turned away from my mother then, heading toward the carriage house, whispering no so many times that I sounded like a cooing dove. My mother asked more than once for me to stop. The further I walked, the further her voice moved from giddy to shrill, rising above the hibiscus and palm trees, booming off the front house and carriage house doors. And I, I think that is such a amazing portrait of of a child i mean she's what 11 or 12 she's oh. preteen realizing that you know my mother is not strong i'm going to have to be strong for myself if i'm ever going to break out of this cycle of violence and and poverty and all that she's facing and i just found that that was one that made me cry <laughs> i think oh, we all come to that realization so right that our yeah. that our 
mother, our father, our parents are, are mm-hmm. breakable, fallible. Mm-hmm. And when Flawed. you learn that, that's, you grow up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But boy, did she get thrown into that deep end fast. Yes. <laughs> she really did. Yeah. Um, I, I like that she wrote the women like that. Some of them were very strong and, mm-hmm. you know, admirable and tried their best. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were, you know, a good example for their children. And then some of them were just awful. Mm-hmm. And the dad stepped in, which was great. Um, I don't think there was a story where both parents were unavailable. Was there? I remember grandmother being very strong in one, but like I said, they all kind of... I can't recall any where, yeah, where together. both parents seemed absent in a sense, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good metaphor, I think, kind of for growing up. I mean, hopefully people aren't growing up because they have to, you know, mm. f- from a bad circumstance, but, mm-hmm. you know, you, the mother's voice fading in the back, you know, that, that happens, you know, mm-hmm. when you move out and you get married and you right. start having your own children if that's what you decide to do and right. mm-hmm. move away, so... Let's see. Next question. Why do you think Fajardo Einstein explored violence against women in this community? Well, I think it's important for women to have the opportunity to read about um, violence that can take place in relationships and families and between people they love. Um, you know, you can you can love your husband or your mother or your father very much, and they can still inflict a lot of pain and violence mm-hmm. towards you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we all know that this happens. Um, more often than it should, and exposing it, I think, can only help bring it into the light and hopefully make it easier to talk about and combat. You know, when it's shameful, you don't talk about it, um, and that just makes it easier to hide. I think she was trying to let other women know that they aren't alone, Um, and I do think it's possible maybe she experienced violence in her life, and writing about it helped her to heal. Yeah, I often think, I, I agree with you, Devin, reading about it can help people to heal, too seeing that reflected um yeah, as, as uh, you should write about all of the things that are uncomfortable you know disabilities or sexism or violence or addiction i mean these things should be in our mainstream literature and, mm-hmm. on, and you know in our entertainment and not be hidden away because i c- there's not a single person on the planet that hasn't experienced one of these things you know somewhat somehow mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and making it shameful and taboo only hurts it and buries it deeper and deeper. And the other thing I think you can extrapolate from other stories is the tendency to fill in gaps with a man, right? So mm-hmm. connecting yourself to a man for safety, financial security, yes, mm-hmm. um, and maybe, you know, in that way, not loving yourself and not valuing yourself, right? Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. Or being pushed into that decision, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe not having a whole array of other choices or options right. and that mm-hmm. happens across yeah. you know classes and races yeah. and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. cultures everywhere yeah mm. you know women get stuck they do. <laughs> yeah 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 an unfortunate truth next question education plays an important role in the story ghost sickness how does that story challenge dominant narratives about the american west stephanie you had some thoughts on that one too oh yeah i loved the story ghost sickness um mm-hmm. The author doesn't explicitly call out imposter syndrome, but it was, you know, it was for sure there. She, the, you know, yes. I can't remember the, the character's name in that in that story, but mm. she, she had so much knowledge about the American West and just didn't because yes. it wasn't packaged in in a way she could connect with traditional avenues of higher education. She really uh, felt like she didn't mm-hmm. have anything to offer. Right. right. And uh, 
it's so restrictive. It just made me think about how many people this is impacting, um, how exclusive higher education is. Mm-hmm. And Oprah has a new book out with Dr. Bruce Perry, and she really talks in there about, okay, I haven't read it yet. I just listened mm-hmm. to the podcast. But, um, <laughs> you know, they really talk about how, like, all of these microaggressions, and I think that in this story in particular, this professor was really doling them out, but how they add up to significant trauma. So someone who's Mm -hmm. maybe experienced trauma is having trauma on trauma. And I just really felt for her and anyone else, other, um, just everybody who's trying to like navigate the waters of higher education without. Um, Well, Barb, you said that the author um, mentioned that she got her stories orally, you know, in little Mm -hmm. snippets, um, you know, cooking with her grandmother or whatever. And I feel like, the character in Ghost Sickness had those stories, too, told to her orally, which, you know, it, she yeah. points out at the very end. Um, she just didn't know how to get them from oral to print. You know, she the mm-hmm. test that she was trying to take was like, I don't know these answers, but she really did mm-hmm. because they were all swirling around in her head as a story mm-hmm. and not, you know, an answer on, a, you know, an ABCD choice or a, mm-hmm. you know, paragraph she could write down. So I, I right. again feel the author probably experienced this herself. Maybe. You know? I get that feeling, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When she says in that story, uh, quote, it didn't have to be a story memory, she says. It can be a picture, a feeling, you know, so just different ways yeah. of of internalizing those yeah. stories. Yeah. Different ways of knowing. Education yeah. seems to be so rigid, rigid and mm-hmm. black and white, Absolutely. and there's so many other ways to learn and mm-hmm. understand, and it's you don't read it from a book and write it down on a test. You know, you don't know it. That's so absolutely not true. I, I read this somewhere, and I don't know if this is legit or what tribe it comes from or even, yeah. But but in oral traditions, sometimes I've heard they would say, like, I don't know if this really happened, <sighs> but I know this story is true. Oh. oh. Yeah. So a different relationship with fact. The, the truth? <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but, but there's truth without having to be. Absolutely. You know, um, yeah without it having to be an actual, did this really happen? Right. But that story can still be true. And, it's like and the blind men touching the elephant, you know? Yeah. I mean, they yeah. all describe it differently, and it's that's their truth, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. all true, but... Yeah, yeah I want to retract my original statement about higher education. <laughs> I, it's pervasive throughout our educational <laughs> structure, our educational <laughs> system. Yeah. Agreed. You know, and I also, I think it's fascinating that, you know, the professor holds so much power... And has no lived experience, yeah. right? Exactly. Oh my, yeah, she was she was uh, um, from the East Coast, yeah. and and yeah, brand new, and and yeah, she may have had a fud, but she didn't have the street smarts. Yeah, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, that was a good story. I, I didn't, Absolutely. I couldn't remember it until you started talking about. Yeah. it. I'm like, oh yes, I love that. I love sort of how they're extracting that tick, and yeah, <laughs> I don't know. She's so scared. She was that tick was free, and then she was kind of. Yeah, it's like she was set free at that moment. You can hear everything clicking into place in her mind almost. That, yeah. oh, God, I can write about this. Yeah. I can write all day. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a great ending to the book, I think, yeah. that, that, you know, there's there's uh, the clouds part and the sun shines right yeah. there. I really hope she expands on some of these stories. I would, I would, I would read one of hers. Can I tell you something I learned just yesterday? This was uh, another interview that I read, and two authors, one one Kali and the other, uh, who was interviewing her, were talking about where the inspiration for stories comes from. And she described an incident in her life. She's driving uh, south from Wyoming into Colorado, going home toward Denver, and this huge fog descends on the highway 
and it is so thick you literally cannot see a thing ahead of you. So she pulls off the road and tries to collect her, her strength to continue the trip home because it's really scary. Mm-hmm. And she said that I spent the next couple hours uh, in a conversation with this woman named Cole and her nephew named Tommy and their interactions. And by the time I got home, I had... I had the basic material for a story. Uh, well, thank you, Devin, and Josie, and Stephanie for a great discussion of Sabrina and Karina, stories by Kali Fajardo Anstein. For our next episode, we've chosen The Only Good Indians, a horror novel by Stephen Graham Jones. Copies are available in print, audiobook on CD, and even playaway formats through the library, and on Overdrive in ebook and e-audio formats. So join us, grab a copy in your favorite format, and read the book, then share your comments and questions with us. See our program notes for details on how to do this. And thanks for listening. See you next time on Book Chatter, the book club for busy people.